Good evening, everyone. My name is Andrew Fracknoy. I'm the Emeritus Professor of Astronomy here at Foothill College in Los Altos Hills. And it's a great pleasure for me to welcome everyone here in the Smithwick Theater and everyone watching us on the web to this program in the 18th year of the Silicon Valley Astronomy Lectures. These uh, lectures, free of charge for everyone here locally, are made possible through the support of four organizations uh, that do public outreach in science, the uh, Ames Research Center of NASA. NASA is one of NASA's premier centers in the country, NASA Ames, and the Foothill College Astronomy Program, which offers day and evening classes in astronomy, the Venerable Astronomical Society of the Pacific, an outreach organization in astronomy, and the SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI Institute in Mountain View. And we're very grateful for their support. Today's program is one I'm especially looking forward to. We're very lucky to have with us Dr. Ashwin Vasavada. Uh, he is a planetary scientist at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, and we're very grateful to JPL for uh, making him available to our program. Uh, his research interests include the climate history of Mars, the weather on Jupiter and Saturn, and boy, is there weather on Jupiter and Saturn, the possibility of ice at the poles of the moon and on Mercury. Currently, he is the project scientist for NASA's Curiosity rover that began development in 2003 and successfully reached Mars in August 2012, sending back amazing images and data about the red planet. He now leads the international team of scientists as they explore Gale Crater on the Martian surface. We are very, very fortunate to have him with us today. So let me present to you Dr. Ashwin Vasavada talking about when Mars was like Earth, five years exploring with the Curiosity Mars rover. All right. Good evening, everybody. It is wonderful to be here, and I thank you so much for spending the evening learning about Mars and the Curiosity rover and everything we've been able to do over the past five years. Um, as mentioned, I'm from the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, it's also one of the premier NASA centers. Uh, <laughs> NASA Ames, we love NASA Ames too. We're, we're sort of the sister organization, but down in uh, Southern California, Pasadena. Uh, JPL is the NASA center that's mostly known for things that go out beyond the moon. Uh, so uh, Voyager, for example, Cassini, those distant deep space missions uh, historically have, have been done through JPL. Now a lot of us, other NASA centers do those too. Um, but that's sort of what we, uh, we're known for. Um, the Curiosity mission itself started, as was mentioned, in 2003. Um, I've been on it pretty much the whole time. It's been basically my career, more or less, uh, because it's been about 15 years uh, that I've been involved in it. And it's been five years on Mars, uh, but the previous time before that was all in the design and the development and the testing, and we'll show some of that. But we'll mostly talk tonight about what we've been discovering on Mars itself. So there's the rover. It's a car-sized rover. It's big, uh, biggest uh, moving 
robotic vehicle uh, and one of the most complex spacecraft that NASA has ever sent into space. Uh, and uh, it also can take selfies. <laughs> As that was a special bonus. Uh, and yeah, no one was there to take this picture. Uh, in fact, <laughs> we uh, put on a camera on the end of the uh, rover's arm in order to do scientific analyses of the uh, soil and rocks on Mars. And one of the engineers realized that when you design a camera on the end of an arm that can focus at any focal length, you can actually turn it around and take pictures of the rover. Uh, and it wasn't as easy as it sounds because um, we uh, have a very narrow angle camera to look at the little spots on the ground. And so it actually takes about 55 pictures uh, and 55 different motions of the robotic arm to take this uh, selfie. Uh, but it was worth it, and now we take a selfie every few months just to see how the rover's doing, how much dirt's on the deck, and uh, that sort of thing. And these are always some of our most popular images. Uh, so we've been exploring Gale Crater. It's a, a crater on Mars uh, for about five years. The rover was designed uh, and tested to last two Earth years. Uh, so that's the warranty. Uh, the warranty expired about three years ago now. Uh, but it's still going because when NASA builds something to last two years, you know, guaranteeing to the taxpayers it's going to last two years, we, we, they tend to last a little longer than that because we try to build them to, you know, to pretty high standards. So we're very fortunate that it's still going. Um, it has probably a few years left still. It's, uh, one thing you'll notice is there's no solar panels on it. It's the first uh, Mars rover. It's, it's the third generation Mars rover, but the first to uh, use a nuclear power source. So the uh, back end of the rover uh, on this image is a, um, a canister that has plutonium in it, naturally radioactive material, gives off heat. That heat's turned into electricity that charges a battery. So the rover, kind of like your cell phone, you have to charge it up overnight, uh, charge a battery, and then during the day we run down that battery, and then overnight that plutonium slowly charges the battery back up. Uh, that way we don't have to worry about dust collecting on solar panels. Uh, but the downside is if you do outlive uh, your warranty, the plutonium does decay over time. And so uh, if nothing mechanically breaks, the mission will end when that plutonium power source no longer can charge the battery enough to uh, keep operating the rover. But that's still a ways off. So we're still in good days with Curiosity. Um, one final note about me, uh, I grew up in Stockton, so uh, I, I'm sort of a, a Northern California person um, for the early part of my life at least. Now LA, after 20 some years, finally getting used to it. Uh, <laughs> but one of the reasons I was happy to come do this lecture is because I still feel like a Northern Californian uh, deep down somewhere inside. And uh, also because my, uh, uh, my high school calculus teacher is here. So, <laughs> okay, so a little bit about Mars. Um, for those who don't know a lot about it, this is uh, the relative size of Mars next to Earth, but they're a little further apart in real life. Uh, so here's Earth. One thing you'll notice immediately is the lack of a nice blue ocean on Mars. Today, Mars is a very cold and dry place. Uh, it, um, very un inhospitable to life, uh, very thin atmosphere, radiation gets down to the surface. 
that would destroy most organic molecules that um, would be involved in anything living. Uh, so pretty um, unfriendly today, um, but we think that was quite different uh, in the past. But even today, you can see that there's little hints of water. There, these are actual clouds. So Mars has a very thin atmosphere, about 1% uh, or so of the Earth's atmosphere, but it also has a trace amount of water vapor that can form clouds in the winter, and also has some pretty thick polar caps. In fact, these polar caps are huge. Uh, if they melted, Mars would be covered by maybe 30 feet of water everywhere. So it's a not insignificant amount of water, it's just not liquid. And life as we know it anyway, uh, you really need water in the liquid form. Uh, so that's what it is today, but keep your eye on Mars for a second. Maybe it was like that uh, three or four billion years ago. This is probably the optimistic view in the sense that here's a whole ocean uh, with a, a thick atmosphere and weather, you know, hurricanes going across the ocean. Um, maybe reality is somewhere in between where uh, we have a lot of evidence now that early Mars had lakes and rivers, maybe even an ocean like this. Here's some of that evidence. Uh, why do we study Mars in particular? Why do we get excited about the prospects of life on Mars? It's pictures like this. Uh, there's a long history of being fascinated with Mars, uh, partly because it's one of the closer planets, so people, uh, no one had to discover it in a telescope. It's, it, it's a red dot as far as human history goes. Uh, people have been looking at it in the sky. Uh, but when we did start uh, looking at it with telescopes, there was all sorts of crazy ideas about uh, canals on the surface or civilizations, that sort of thing. And when we finally got there in the 1960s and 70s and got these first pictures, uh, there was a lot of churn there too because the first pictures looked very barren like the moon and disappointed a lot of people. But one of the very next missions returned images like this where those lunar-like craters, in between those craters, all of a sudden you saw uh, channels like this that looked very much like river systems on Earth. And that's uh, still to today, the hypothesis is that these once were flowing rivers where rainfall or groundwater came up to the surface and collected in these lowlands between the craters and flowed you know, with gravity downhill and uh, streams connected together and formed rivers and they emptied into big basins that maybe formed lakes and oceans. Uh, a little later on, we found that um, and this is all very, uh, the ancient terrain on Mars, probably three to four billion years ago. We found that that period of water activity, that liquid water was present on Mars, ended in sort of a, uh, a climax where a bunch of water flooded across the surface and some of the youngest features of, that are related to water are these giant flood channels. So these are miles across. Uh, these are the kind of thing like on Earth you'd find when an entire you know, ice age ended and a glacier that was holding back a, a huge ocean of meltwater suddenly uh, broke and, and you can find channels like this in some parts of northern United States where uh, almost like an entire inland ocean drained and scoured out the land. These are the kind of things we find on Mars in some places that are slightly younger than these, but still very old. When we got even better spacecraft to Mars with even higher resolution cameras and big telescopes pointing down to the surface from space, we found features like this. This is about a mile across now, and it's a river delta. So a channel came in from this side, 
And over time, the channel put some mud over here, put some mud over there, put some mud over there, and fanned out. Just like the Mississippi River has a delta that it's forming underwater, uh, under the ocean, where it, where it goes into uh, the Gulf uh, of Mexico. So if you were to remove the water uh, above the outlet of the Mississippi River, you'd find a delta just like this. So a lot of really incontrovertible evidence now that Mars uh, was a very different planet three to four billion years ago and had a lot more water. So here's kind of a timeline. Um, you, you've all, especially since uh, Jurassic Park came out, you're all familiar with ages that we call things on Earth, uh, different periods of time that geologists use to describe ages. Uh, we don't have a Jurassic on Mars, but we have a Noachian, uh, like Noah, named after the time when a lot of water was on Mars. Uh, we have the Hesperian age uh, from about 3.8 billion years ago to 3 billion years ago, uh, where we don't really know if it was wet or dry, uh, but it, that's when some kind of major transition in the Mars climate happened. And then we know from about 3 billion years ago to the present, Mars was probably pretty similar to what it is today. Very cold, very dry. Uh, and so all that really cool evidence for lakes and rivers and deltas exists in the Noachian primarily, but some is here in the Hesperian. And what's kind of neat is um, uh, Curiosity is exploring features that we'll talk about in the rest of this talk that all date from about this time period. So one of the things that we're able to study uh, and, and still hoping to even find more about as the years go by is that transition from the uh, very wet Mars, possibly warmer Mars, to uh, how, it, how things went bad and you got to the very cold and dry place it is today. So some of the questions that we ask as a scientist, as scientists who study Mars and who work on this uh, Curiosity mission are questions like this. Mars was once wet, but was it warm? So in other words, uh, was, was the atmosphere thicker and did the climate support a whole hydrological system with um, ocean somewhere, evaporating water, raining somewhere else like on Earth? Uh, or was, were all these lakes and rivers just kind of transient events because a volcano went off somewhere and just warmed the atmosphere for 100 years? That would be a lot less interesting for life because uh, if it was more of a sustained, you know, billion-year time, that gives life a little bit more time to operate uh, in terms of uh, originating on Mars like it did on Earth. But we still are not sure if all those features couldn't just be explained by little transient one-off events. You'll see, though, that curiosity is changing our view of that. And that gets to this question, was it habitable? And uh, if it was habitable, for how long was it? Was it just habitable for 100 years? Not not very interesting biologically, uh, but if it was habitable for uh, 10 million years, now you're talking. And so we'll talk about that. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about what the word habitability uh, means in the context of our mission. So Curiosity doesn't uh, go out with the goal of detecting life on Mars. Uh, that's actually really hard to do even on Earth. You pick up a three billion year old rock on Earth, uh, and that's really the interesting time on Mars. It's very difficult to prove that uh, life um, is evident in that rock on Earth, even though we sort of know it was teeming with life back then. Because little tiny uh, microbiological organisms don't leave a lot of fossils behind. They leave very faint traces of themselves. 
Uh, and so it's pretty challenging to go to Mars and think you're going to find evidence of life that's 3 billion years old. But what we could more confidently do 10 years ago when Curiosity was designed was ask it to look for evidence of habitability, habitable conditions. Uh, not was life there, but were the conditions on Mars able to support life? What do we mean by that? Here's a nice, you know, not the perfect habitable place on, on Earth, but a very habitable place on Earth nonetheless, Death Valley. <laughs> it's kind of ironic. Um, what makes the place habitable on Earth? Liquid water. That's sort of the common denominator for life as we know it. And, it, it, you know, it's hard enough to search for life as we know it. We don't try to search for life as we don't know it. Uh, so we look for liquid water on Mars as an element of a habitable environment. We look for the key chemical ingredients that life requires. So it's okay if you have liquid water, but if you don't have carbon, you're not gonna form life as we know it. If you don't have nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur, all the things, the basic building blocks that all of our cells and, and, and machines of life in, in our bodies are made out of. Uh, we look for those things that are present naturally on Mars as raw material for life. We also look for sources of energy. So um, energy requires, uh, life requires uh, energy. So we make, you know, uh, we're able to survive because we're at the top of the food chain and we eat things that eat other things and eventually get traced back to sunlight, uh, growing plants that other things eat. So we get our energy indirectly, uh, but microorganisms can get their energy from a lot of different ways. They can get them from sunlight. Microorganisms, you can find living things uh, two miles below the ground on Earth because they're able to exploit the chemicals inside rocks uh, and uh, eat those chemicals and draw energy from them. So we can look for those sorts of chemical uh, or other sources of energy that life would need. And if we find these three things, that's kind of a, a good agreed upon list that you could declare you found a, a habitable environment. So how do we go find those things? You build a really cool rover. So this is a... Um, Car-sized rover, it, uh, it's a third generation, as I mentioned. The first one was kind of the size of a, a shoebox that was in 1997 called Sojourner, and that was the first demonstration of being able to drive robotically on another planet. <clears throat> and then followed those in 2003, 2004 with two, a twin uh, set of rovers called Spirit and Opportunity. And Opportunity, still going today, way outlived its warranty. Uh, we're, we're hoping to do as well, um, but it's been going now for 14 years and 5,000 Martian days. Uh, and now the, that's about the size of a golf cart. Uh, and then you got to Curiosity because we have a set of instruments and capabilities that required this big rover. And namely, it's of course we want to drive around uh, like, like the other two rovers did, but the key thing that we do differently from any rover that's gone to Mars before is drill into rocks. So we have this six-foot robotic arm, and we have at the end of that robotic arm a drill. And the reason we have that drill is because in order to figure out if those key chemical ingredients for life are there, in order to understand how much water was there and what it did to the rocks, you actually have to sample that material and put it into laboratories and run laboratory experiments to do the quality of science that we want to do. So the rover is this big for two reasons. It has to house this big jackhammer drill, and it has to have a whole front end dedicated to these laboratories. So the rover was built around the capability to drill, get material, powder that you create with the drill, 
drop it into some laboratories on the rover itself and run these experiments. Uh, so we're doing some pretty sophisticated stuff with this rover, uh, and that's a lot of what uh, led to its size and its complexity. Because you have to design a drill that can work dozens of times without ever being able to clean it, lubricate it, anything. You gotta run chemistry experiments uh, without ever being able, again, to, to clean something or unclog something or all those things you would easily do in a laboratory on Earth, take something apart, clean it, put it back together, you can't do that. So a lot of the, the engineering challenge from the, for the science of this rover was to design uh, those systems that can operate 100 million miles away for uh, as many years as, as we can and, and do many experiments uh, without ever having a human being able to service it. We also have a whole bunch of other instruments. I won't go through all of them, but uh, we have cameras that, uh, of course, look around and take all of our pictures, another camera on the end of the arm. We have the drill I mentioned, <clears throat> the laboratories in the front of the rover. We have a weather station. Uh, we try to get as much as we can out of these missions by putting a whole bunch of different sensors and experiments on them. One of the coolest things we have, though, is this laser. Uh, so we, uh, if we see anything living on Mars, we can kill it. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, of course. <laughs> uh, so we have this laser. Uh, this is a really neat <laughs> instrument because it, we can actually vaporize little bits of rock and soil uh, on the surface of Mars. And um, those sparks we can observe with our cameras. And we can look at the color of the spark in particular. Uh, so this is like a classic high school experiment. You put some substance in a flame and see what color it turns. And that tells you what uh, is inside, what, the, what it's made out of chemically. So by, by shooting with this laser and creating a little spark, a bit of plasma, we can image that with a spectrometer, look at the wavelengths of light that are emitted, and actually figure out from up to 20 feet away what a rock or soil is made out of. That helps us because then we don't have to go drill every little thing that we find. So instead, we're able to um, do this remotely. And then if something really stands out, we can then drive up to it, <clears throat> put the arm on it, check it out, and if it's really exciting, then we can think about drilling it and sampling it. <clears throat> Here's what it looked like uh, when we were making it. Uh, I'm a scientist, of course, so uh, they don't let me anywhere near it. <laughs> uh, these are all the engineers who built it, uh, who just are you know, complete uh, uh, magicians at what they do. And uh, they were able to, you know, design and build all this, and then it was integrated, it was fabricated, you know, and, and and put together in a clean room, because we're actually doing some very sensitive chemical experiments in those rock samples. So even, you know, the grease from a fingerprint would throw off our measurements if we're trying to look for organic molecules. Uh, so the entire uh, Curiosity rover has never seen a, a human fingerprint. Uh, it, it's all been assembled with these uh, in a clean room environment with the everybody wearing bunny suits and uh, uh, and keeping it as clean as we possibly can. This is actually the day that it drove its first uh, uh, it's it took its first steps, so to speak. Um, so you know here's sort of where it lives now, kind of a lonely place, but this is a little introduction to where we ended up. Um, we had to choose somewhere to go with this rover uh, that we could conduct these experiments. So um, that's another big challenge for the science team. Um, in addition to designing all these experiments and figuring out how to answer the questions about habitability, 
another unique thing is that Mars, you know, is about, um, it's like if you took all the continents on Earth and put them together. That's about the same area that Mars has on its surface. So, you know, where would you go if you had one chance to answer an important question about Earth? Where would you send your one rover that could rove, you know, 10 miles or so? Um, yeah, it, it, who knows, right? And uh, it's, a, it's a tough question. It took us about six years to answer. So we scoured the surface of Mars using all the satellite data that we've been able to accumulate from the orbiters that are at Mars, like this one, uh, and uh, had a lot of contentious meetings where we brought scientists together and everybody threw out their ideas and other people said they were wrong and, you know. Uh, that's about what we did for uh, six years until we narrowed it down from 60 landing sites to 30 to 10. Then we had a big meeting where we got to four, and then we went to four, from four to one on a very momentous day about a year before launch. Uh, and we ended up with this site called Gale Crater right here. And one thing you can see that's, uh, even from this picture that's a little bit unique about Gale, is that it's not empty. It's got a mountain in the middle of it. And that mountain is what drew us to it. So here's Gale Crater. It's about 100 miles across. And it's a three mile deep hole in the ground on Mars. Uh, and uh, craters like this are formed like they are on the moon, where a giant asteroid or meteor hits the planet, a uh, huge explosion, uh, and dirt's ejected out. Uh, and then you're left with this empty crater. Uh, so they shouldn't have a mountain like this in it. Sometimes they have a little peak in the middle like this. That's probably there from the original impact. But all this stuff got here later. And what we were able to see when we looked uh, with the uh, orbiters at Gale Crater is that this is a mountain of layered rock, uh, which is also telling us that it's not a volcano. It didn't form with the original impact. Layers of rock built up over time and uh, filled this crater. And that immediately got us thinking that, you know, that you could either do that from wind or you could do that from water. And some of the layers were, were we could even tell this from orbit, some of the layers were made out of minerals that form when Martian rock interacts with water, specifically things like clay minerals. Uh, clay minerals form when uh, volcanic rock interacts with water over some period of time. It gets weathered down into a clay. Uh, and uh, we see some of that in this mountain. So two things attracted us. One, the evidence that there was uh, water involved in whatever process brought these, this, this sediment into the crater. Two, that there was a, a three-mile-high stack of layers. And to a geologist, that's really wonderful because it means that a lot of time has been recorded in that stack. You don't build up three miles of sediment overnight. Uh, so just like if you were to go to the Grand Canyon, and start at the bottom and work your way up, you'd, you'd walk through millions and millions of years of Earth's history. Our hope was we go to Gale Crater, we land at the bottom, we drive up, we can walk through, we can drive through uh, millions, of years, millions of years of Mars history. So we don't only have one chance to ask the question about habitability on Mars, we have a chance to ask it over millions and millions of years of Mars history to see if different periods were habitable, if it went from habitable to inhabitable, all those kinds of questions. So that's why we chose it. Uh, the next thing I'm going to show you is a movie, um, which is, uh, uh, does a better job than me just talking about it, uh, showing you uh, some of the steps involved in building the rover, testing the rover, and getting it to Mars. 
And I won't spend a lot of time on this because I want to talk about all the science uh, we discovered, but um, the way it arrived at Mars and how, it was, how, we, how the engineers designed a landing system for a one-ton rover is uh, practically worth the price of admission itself. Uh, it, it, who, who stayed up and watched the landing five years ago? I, I figured some of you did. <laughs> uh, I certainly did. Uh, and you'll, you'll, those of you who saw it know that it just was, you look at this system that landed the rover and you think, that's crazy. And that's uh, what NASA thought too when the JPL engineers first proposed it. Uh, basically landed with a jetpack uh, flying down the rover to Mars uh, and landing the rover on its own wheels on the Martian surface. Uh, so unlike the other systems before where you land a, a rocket ship or you um, airbags were equally crazy in their day, um, but this is even another system. So here's that movie. That great things take many people working together to make them happen is one of the fantastic things of human existence. We've not only have we driven the rover, we've moved its arm, put it all through its paces, but it's been in a thermal vacuum chamber and kept very cold. It, parts of it have been in a centrifuge. We've done drop tests, pull tests, drive tests, load tests, stress tests. Um, it's just an amazing amount of testing this vehicle has gone through. We've tried every way of operating in the vehicle using the software, literally thousands and thousands of hours of software testing. It's been just a, an amazing several years, really, of constant testing and development, finding problems, fixing those problems, and going on to the next problem. I, I think she's ready to go. LC, this is the LD on channel one. LC, you have permission to launch. Roger, proceeding with the count. T minus 10, 9, 8. that she's going to go and she's going to be successful, absolutely. It's going to go and she'll be good. We should have parachute deploy around Mach 1.7. Parachute is deployed. We are decelerating. Teachel has separated where we found the ground. Standing by for batchel separation. We are in powered flight. We're at an altitude of one kilometer descending. Standing by for Skycrane. Skycrane has started. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. fantastic demonstration of what our nation and our agency can do.
I could only think of the words of Teddy Roosevelt as I was sitting there. It is far better to dare mighty things even though we might fail than to stay in a twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. And the team brought us victory today. Today, right now, the wheels of curiosity have begun to blaze the trail for human footprints on Mars. This is an amazing achievement. Well, today on Mars, history was made on Earth. The successful landing of Curiosity marks what is really an unprecedented technological tour de force. It will stand as an American point of pride far into the future. We've got a long mission ahead of us, and, and because of that and the capability of this rover, we have this possibility for just monumental science accomplishments. Within two months, the team found an ancient riverbed, evidence of flowing water. We have found a habitable environment that is so benign and supportive of life that probably if this water was around and you had been on the planet, you would have been able to drink it. All right, that never gets old. <laughs> Yeah, so um, at the landing, you know, you're, you're kind of um, stuck because Mars is about 15 minutes away by the speed of light. So there's nothing you can do. All those people that were there looking nervous while it was landing, they weren't flying anything. Uh, they, they were just watching their screens as data was coming in 15 minutes after everything actually happened. Uh, that's just the nature of landing something on Mars. So everything they did, they had worked for years to program Curiosity to fly itself down safely. And, and we were all just sort of helpless that night. Uh, and it was all kind of through computer screens, you know, so it, as, as emotional as that night was, and it was very emotional, uh, the thing that is even um, more uh, experienced for me was the launch. Because you're there in Florida, you, you know, your chest is, so I shouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> It's very realistic. Your, your chest is thumping with, uh, you know, with the, the rocket's vibrations. And you know that you've just spent like, you know, six, seven years building this uh, really delicate, complex machine. And, and you viscerally are like watching it blast off on this controlled explosion into space. And it, not only is it just terrifying, uh, but you really get this sense that you're, you're sending th something, you know, away from Earth. Uh, when you see a rocket launch, you know, with your own eyes. So go do that sometime. There's a lot of good launches <laughs> these days, including from, uh, from Vandenberg down, down in Southern California. So um, we landed. Uh, and one of the things that we were able to find um, almost immediately was thanks to this crazy landing system. Uh, so these rockets were firing from the jetpack, and uh, even though the, the, that uh, jetpack stayed... Uh, something like 40 feet off the ground, the, the jets uh, created little um, areas that scoured away the local um, sand and gravel and exposed bedrock below, which was pretty cool because if, if you're a geologist, you don't really like sand and gravel. You don't know what it is or where it came from. You like bedrock. Bedrock means that rock was there. It, mean, it, it formed there and, and tells you something about it. And so the fact that we landed on this big gravelly area, but within these scours, we had rock, uh, of course, the very first thing we did was go check out those areas. And, and they, they actually was kind of a gold mine. Uh, you, you heard this alluded to at the end of that video. There was a couple spoilers in there. 
of what we found the first year. But what we found were, was these slabs of bedrock that were, uh, that were some places buried underneath the soil uh, were eroding. And as they were eroding, we realized the slabs were made out of a bunch of little rocks cemented together. And those little rocks were falling out in collections. Uh, this is probably a billion years of erosion. And the rocks themselves were rounded. Uh, and rocks don't really get rounded through many natural processes other than uh, the most effective one on Earth is, is transport in a stream. Uh, like pebbles just rotating and colliding with one another in a stream bed. Uh, you, can, you can get, you know, we, we measured all the angles of the rocks, exactly how rounded they were, the size of the rocks, compared them to different places on Earth. And it, really, it, it told us that uh, we were actually driving through an ancient stream bed on Mars that probably had transported these pebbles for something like 10 to 15 miles. Uh, and the water was flowing somewhere between sort of ankle deep to hip deep. So it's a pretty good size uh, stream, maybe even a river. Uh, and, um, you know, for, uh, for people who had, who had seen for maybe a couple decades, like me, uh, rivers on pictures of um, Mars from, from orbit, you, you sort of know that these things exist. But it, when you're there and you're seeing the rounded pebbles and you think, you know, man, we are driving right through an ancient stream bed, that that's just brings a whole new meaning to it. Uh, and so this is the first time we really were able to uh, find this evidence of um, that water flowed on the surface of Mars in a pretty vigorous way. We went to a place where that water may have collected into a lake, and our hypothesis was that this flat area here, you can see how, how different it is now. The gravel's all gone. It's just a flat plain of rock that very much looks like it could be an ancient um, dry uh, lake bed. Uh, and so we drilled into it. This is the first time we got out the drill. Here we are drilling at a place we called Yellowknife Bay. Uh, and um, here's what it looks like when we drill. We end up with a little dime-sized drill hole. Uh, and, um, and if you can see uh, the, these little black dots here, th those are the laser. Um, places. We, we, we blasted with the laser. So we're looking down with curiosity from about seven feet off the ground, firing our laser into a dime-sized drill hole and making that little pattern down the side. So it's a pretty fantastic uh, machine. And with the laser, we could, we could then see if the composition of the rock changed as we drilled uh, about um, two and a half centimeters, uh, sorry, about six and a half centimeters, about two inches into the surface to gather the powder. Uh, what's cool about this picture is that we drilled um, the rock, and then we took this picture at night using our own um, LEDs, our own uh, lights at the end of the arm in the middle of the night. And what's neat about that is that Mars is very dusty. So any picture you take during the day always has this orange cast to it because you're, the sunlight's very heavily filtered. It's like a very smoggy day on Earth. But if you wake up in the middle of the night and take a picture with your own lights, you actually can see what color Mars is for the first time. Uh, so this is like a true color picture of Mars. Uh, and it's, you know, no surprise, it's orange. It's, uh, it's just not as orange as it looks in the middle of the day. And, and what's really cool is that the powder that we drilled is not orange, it's gray. Uh, and so the, the, the skin of Mars is all oxidized and rusted, uh, but you just drill a few inches into a rock and you can get more pristine material, which is a very good sign for one day finding evidence of life because it means that the environment that's now changing Mars today hasn't penetrated that deep into the rocks where things could have been living at one point. And it would have, you know, it could have destroyed all that evidence. 
uh, through the oxidation that's occurring at the surface. Uh, so what did we find? Um, here's a couple of pictures that show you the kind of data that we get. We drill into the rock and we put it in the material into some laboratories and one of the laboratories takes an x-ray and shines that x-ray through the rock powder. It's called an x-ray diffractometer. Uh, diffraction is a, is a fancy scientific word for splitting light into different wavelengths. It's like creating a rainbow and you shine light through a prism. Uh, we do that just with x-rays and uh, the reason that you get these rainbow arcs when you shine x-rays through rocks is that the rocks are made out of crystalline minerals. So every mineral is a kind of crystal that diffracts the x-rays in a different way. And so a scientist can read these arcs like a fingerprint, uh, the spacing of the arcs, the intensity of the arcs, and tell you exactly what minerals are in those rocks. And if we find clay minerals, like we did, uh, these, this big arc down here is uh, called phyllosilicate. That's a kind of, that means basically a clay. Uh, and so we found clay minerals in this hypothesized lake bed uh, which tells us that water was actually here and it actually probably was a lake bed. The other experiment that we have, the other laboratory we have, is, uh, uh, is a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, uh, which means um, it, it's a very common instrument you'd see on all the detective TV shows. Uh, it's the kind of thing that tells you element by element what's in a sample. Um, and the way we get the material out into the instrument is you put the powder in the laboratory and you bake it and you bake it at about 1,000 degrees. And as you do that, the rock starts to degrade. And as the rock degrades, as you're slowly ramping up the temperature, different minerals decompose at different times. And so you can, this time is running left to right. And so a bunch of water comes off first because water is pretty easily removed when you heat something. And then as you heat it up more and more, carbon dioxide comes off, oxygen comes off, other things come off. And so you can, you can sort of reconstruct what was in the rock based on how it degraded as you heated it. Uh, and so these two pieces of information are sort of the core science that we get from any rock sample. And they work in, in synergy with each other. Uh, we can detect clays both by the arcs it makes and by the fact that clays decompose at about 600 degrees and they release a bunch of water. So uh, we also found Carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, sulfur, phosphorus, nitrogen, all those things I, I, we talked about earlier being important for all the cells in living organisms. We found evidence of liquid water, uh, and we found sources of energy because there were different. One example is there's different types of sulfur in here uh, which have different chemical states. Um, for those of you who are chemists, there's reduced sulfur and oxidized sulfur minerals, and that's the kind of thing that a microbe can use to draw chemical energy from. So even at this very first site, in the first year of the mission, we found water, uh, evidence of water. We found key chemical ingredients that life would require. We found sources of energy. So we found a habitable environment, uh, which was fantastic. So uh, that took a lot of pressure off of us, frankly, uh, because we were able to, uh, to tell all the people who uh, you know, um, supervise us that we were able to uh, successfully accomplish the goals of the mission in the first year we were on Mars at this first uh, drill area. And that allowed us then the last four years to just add to that story more and more, uh, knowing that we at least accomplished the basic uh, elements of what we set out to do. So um, we, uh, the, the, the reason that's a little significant too is because 
Um, we weren't planning to spend much time at, around where we landed. We told our bosses in Washington, D.C. at NASA headquarters, you know, we'll do, spend a couple weeks there, then we'll go to the mountain pretty quickly after that. We spent about a year <laughs> uh, uh, at this site be because we discovered all this great stuff. And so we kept saying, oh, just wait, just wait. Uh, uh, but then we did finally pick up stakes. Uh, I remember it turned out it was July 4th of 2013. Uh, we landed on August 5th, 2012. So almost a year after we landed, we finally left this area after accomplishing all this and made a beeline for uh, the mountain. And along the way, we found this spectacular uh, rock formation. Uh, a bunch of sandstone that was all big slabs of sandstone that were all tilted in one direction. And the direction they were tilting was facing the mountain itself. Uh, so as we were driving to the mountain, we came across these. And there was more than one of these formations. And we studied it. And based on uh, the evidence of finding the river before and the lake uh, and studying the sand up close and figuring out the sand particles were too big to have been transported by wind, must have been involved uh, with uh, being transported by water, we concluded that this formation was a delta. Uh, so here's a little cartoon of what we think was happening. Uh, water is flowing here from right to left. And you have water flowing downhill and some rivers. Then that water encounters a lake. And when you encounter the lake, that fast-moving river water all of a sudden slows down. So all the sand it's carrying and all the dirt it's carrying begins to fall out of the water. And so you end up with all these sand deposits, tilted sand deposits, right where the river meets the lake. And then as you go further into the lake, now all the silt begins to fall out. And you get these very fine layers of, um, of silt that build up at the bottom. That muddy stuff your feet get at the bottom of the lake is, is over here. So here's where you get your pebbles. Here's where you get your sand, and here's where you get your mud. So um, we found the pebbles in the river. We drove a little bit closer to the mountain. We found the tilted beds of sand. Then, of course, our hypothesis was when we get closer to the mountain, we're going to find the lakes, uh, more lakes, not the lake that we found out on the plains. But if the deltas are all facing the mountain, maybe the mountain itself is made up of lake deposits, as funny as that sounds. Um, and we got to the mountain, and I hope you can see this, uh, but what you're looking at are slabs of rock. This is, this is only about two inches across here. Uh, and the rocks are made up of extremely fine layers, just hundreds and hundreds of layers, about a millimeter uh, thick each. And the entire uh, mountain is, is, that we've driven up so far is made of just continuous set of these millimeter layers. Now we've driven up about um, uh, like a 1,000 vertical feet that are made up of these tiny layers and without much of a, a break in the continuity of the layers. And, and when you have these very continuous layers of, muddy, of, of mud-sized sediment, it's very consistent with the idea that this is all uh, mud that formed maybe annually as, as lakes were fed by streams uh, and then hardened into rock. So how do you get? Uh, a mountain where there once was supposed to be a bunch of lakes? Good question. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> here's our idea, is that Gale Crater formed. Uh, and then back when Mars was a little more wet and there was maybe precipitation or at least groundwater, uh, groundwater flowed through all the cracks in the rock and maybe fell out of, of the clouds and formed lakes that filled up the crater. 
And at, the lakes maybe never were that deep, but they were, but sediment continually is being brought in by the rivers, and that silt just settled out in these lakes and slowly over many, many millions of years built up millimeter by millimeter, and the lake, the lake rose as the, the, the mud kept getting thicker. And then over time, so imagine, like keep your eye maybe on this spot where imagine the rover is studying right there. Um, over time what happened is that a few things. So uh, the lake level was at one point here and then it, it got higher and higher. And at some point this stuff that is not really lake is just maybe dust filled it up even more. And then the climate of Mars changed in a way where no longer were things being brought into the crater, but now wind was scouring, scouring stuff out of the crater. And it scoured it out in a way that sort of dug this big pit into what was a full crater at one point, leaving this, sandy, this dusty stuff here, and then the layers of, of lake sediments that we're now studying climbing up this way. So these lake sediments would have gone all the way across when the lake was filling it, but this, all this has been removed uh, over eons by wind. So that's our story, and we're sticking to it. <laughs> and we're continually finding evidence to support it and making our case to the rest of the scientific community through the usual process, lots of peer-reviewed papers. Uh, but so far, when we run these ideas by Earth geologists, who, who of course uh, can do a lot more advanced stuff than we can do on Mars, uh, they, you know, they think we have a pretty um, good idea of what we're, we're seeing here. So, We've now driven uh, about 18 kilometers, so you know, 11, 12 miles uh, on, on the ground. We landed out here on the plains. This is a sort of map looking down. These are the plains we landed in. This is the mountain and all the layers of the mountain. Uh, so we landed out here. We made all those discoveries right where we landed at Yellowknife Bay. Then we drove pretty fast, found those deltas kind of in here. We got to the edge of the mountain about two years into the mission. And for the last three years, we've been slowly going up all the layers of the mountain, little by little. And we're here right now. And we'd like to do this remaining segment before the mission uh, um, ends. So hopefully, we'll be able to do all this in the next two or three years. And uh, once we get up to this layer, we will have studied all the layers on the mountain that appear to have formed through water. So far, we've drilled about 15 holes. Uh, here's uh, 12 of them. And you can see there's kind of a variety. Uh, there's holes that, that the material is reddish once, when we drill it. So maybe the oxidation has, has penetrated into the rock. There's holes that are, most of them are, are pretty gray. And in those gray holes is where we tend to find uh, the clay minerals and uh, even organic molecules, very simple carbon-containing molecules that have survived because they haven't been oxidized and, and destroyed. And then uh, we found a couple more red holes lately. I think the next few slides is a little bit more of a, a, a tour, uh, just my favorite pictures. <laughs> so, um, but just to give you another a sense of the variety of things that we're seeing as we've been driving along the last few years, um, here's, uh, here, here is a nice picture showing three materials that we've gotten very used to seeing that are very different from each other. Uh, there's The first thing you see here is uh, this pale bedrock that's very smooth, those are the lake deposits. And when we look up close at these, they have those millimeter scale layers that, that tell us they were lake deposits. Um, above them in this area, there are this, there's this very rugged sandstone. 
Um, this is a rock that was once loose sand that's now cemented together. This particular sandstone is very much uh, consistent with being driven by wind, as opposed to those deltas that were water. This is an ancient dune field, sand dunes, that were there two, three billion years ago that have now uh, turned into solid rock. Uh, and then the third thing you see here is modern sand. So this is just sand that's blowing around today. Uh, and so, you know, when we're driving around, we have to sort of mentally ignore the modern stuff. It's not that interesting. We have to find the places where the lake deposits are exposed at the surface so we can go study them. And then we have to understand how this later stuff covered up some of the lake deposits uh, and, and, and how it's related uh, in timing. This is one of my favorite pictures. These are the Murray Buttes. These are uh, several stories high. These big buttes that we drove through. It's like you're driving through Utah or somewhere. Uh, uh, Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner country. <laughs> uh, and you're driving through here. These are those lake deposits. And again, the sandstone is above them. And the reason you get these buttes, whether you're talking about New Mexico, Utah, or Mars, is because the sandstone is a little bit more resistant to erosion. So even though most of it's gone, these layers used to connect at one point, uh, the, the sandstone is a little bit of armor that's keeping, that's protecting the rest of the stuff from being eroded away. So you get these little towers. But eventually, another billion years, these will be gone too, leaving these, um, these lake deposits exposed. Here's a thing we saw at the, at the beginning, um, the selfie. Uh, what's neat about this is um, we studied some of these modern sand dunes. It was actually the first time we've ever seen um, modern sand blowing around on Mars. Uh, the other rovers have seen ancient dune fields, but we actually were actually able to drive up to dune fields and watch them actually moving, which was really cool too. Even though it has really nothing to do with life uh, and our main goals of the mission, we're on Mars, you gotta study it. Uh, and so we, we did some playing around, we dug some trenches, we watched sand avalanche, we watched sand blow. And one of the things we discovered was that, um, not surprisingly, uh, there's a lot of similarities to sand dunes on Earth. Um, the dunes have similar shapes uh, because the physics is roughly the same, even you have a thinner atmosphere and a little less gravity. But one thing that you do not find on Earth are these ripples. You find these small ripples, you can see those here. You go to Death Valley, you'll see dunes covered by these small ripples that are maybe a few inches apart. You, what you won't find are this other set of ripples that are about three feet apart. And when it turns out that those only form in the thin atmosphere of Mars. The, the totally different physics comes into play with the thin atmosphere in this case. Uh, and so you, um, you, you really are on Mars when you see those, which is kind of neat. Um, this is just showing you some results from our weather station. Uh, what's plotted here, this is temperature in Celsius and Fahrenheit. Um, can't really read it, but I think this is minus 120 over here and uh, um, something, 100 Fahrenheit over here. So this is Los Angeles over two years. Uh, and Los Angeles is nice and warm and actually doesn't vary a whole lot from day to night. And this is Mars to give you an idea of what the rover has to put up with every day. So Mars varies from summer to winter like this. But the day-night differences are even bigger than the summer-winter differences. So every single day, now for 2,000 days on Mars, 
and 5,000 days for Opportunity, the other rover, you, you have these very sensitive electronics, moving parts, you know, all this kind of stuff that has to survive these 100 degree plus temperature changes from day to night. There's, you know, you leave your laptop out overnight in LA and it wouldn't survive the next morning. Uh, so <laughs> it's yet another way that the, the engineers just have to uh, really do some amazing work to make these machines last in this really horrible uh, uh, extreme environment on Mars. We found a meteor. Um, we, aren't actually, we actually aren't the first rover to find these. It's not uncommon, actually, to drive across Mars and find meteors. Uh, and this is a big chunk of iron. Uh, we can shoot it with our laser, and we determined that it actually was an iron-nickel meteorite, um, which, uh, similar to iron meteorites you'd find on Earth. Um, so that's kind of neat. Here's um, a picture of a rock slab. This is about one inch here. Uh, where we, uh, we see all those thin layers that are similar to what you'd find in the lake bed uh, that we think are, are indicative of a lake, uh, ancient lake bed. But within this particular slab, there are all these little pimples on it. And when we looked close up at those little bumps, they, they have these interesting shapes. And those shapes are very uh, similar to what you'd find if you dug below an ancient lake on Earth, or an, uh, even a current lake on Earth, uh, where gypsum or other salts are crystallizing in the mud below the lake. Uh, and so we found these little uh, swallowtail shapes that are very diagnostic of gypsum crystals, which is a kind of uh, salt that forms in lake beds as they dry up. Uh, and these salts were, these crystals were forming in the, in the sediment. So yet another circumstantial piece of evidence that we are actually studying ancient lakes. On the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, this is rare, but it's neat to like see the whole picture. We found places where the lakes clearly disappeared. So this is a slab of rock that's made out of that same mudstone that formed through lakes. So it was once soaking wet mud that hardened into rock. But unlike the other ones that sort of hardened underground over time, this one hardened at the surface. Uh, something happened where the lake shrunk, maybe, or the, it got warmer for uh, you know a few days or a few years, and the top layer of mud on this particular slab cracked, just the same way you'd find mud cracks in a drying pond or something on Earth. Uh, so it was really neat to be able to like see these cracks, measure all of them, could compare all their angles to mud cracks on Earth, and figure out that these mud cracks probably formed in a single day on Mars. You know, so it, it's kind of cool to think. You know, that what we're seeing here, one day there was a lake, the, the lake receded for whatever reason, and in one day the mud cracked, and then it got buried, kind of like, you know, the, the mosquitoes in Jurassic Park. <laughs> if the right conditions happen, you just bury it quickly and you preserve it, uh, and uh, three billion years later, we can study it. Um, this, this shows some cracks in the ground that are filled with this white, these white minerals. Uh, and uh, this is also a pretty common thing you could find on Earth, where uh, the rock that forms um, most of what you see here, in this case, the lake sediments, uh, was buried underground, hardened, then cracked, and then groundwater circulated through those rocks, and the groundwater had a bunch of chemicals dissolved in it that then precipitated out on the, on the walls of the cracks and filled them with minerals. And this is calcium sulfate, uh, gypsum, or other types of calcium sulfate uh, form these uh, 
form these ridges, which um, basically are, are just the minerals that formed in, in ancient cracks. And now as the whole rock is eroding, the crack forming thing is kind of sticking out of the surface. So what's neat about this is it tells us that not only were lakes there for a long, long time, we think millions or tens of millions of years to get the 1,000 feet of lake deposits, but after the lakes were long gone and that mud hardened into rock and fractured underground, uh, then groundwater was still circulating through them, still maintaining a habitable environment for some you know, much longer period after that to allow all these minerals to form. So not only was Mars habitable for the lakes, but even a, a, a era after the lakes when there was groundwater. So starting to wrap things up here, Mars was once wet. Uh, was it warm? We think it probably was. It's still, we don't still have like the, the smoking gun evidence for that, but when you start talking about lakes that survive for millions to tens of millions of years, you probably do need something like a, a full weather system that can evaporate water from a, a lake or an ocean somewhere and then uh, have clouds in the atmosphere that bring it down and precipitate and recharge these streams that kept the lakes going for millions or tens of millions of years. Just your, your errant volcano going off won't provide the continuity that we see at Gale Crater. So we, we really do think the ancient climate was not notably different and sustained in that different way. So those are the answers, <laughs> we think. Um, I want to end, well, a couple more things. Um, this picture came down today. Uh, and um, it, if any of you are following the mission, you, you know why already this is very important. <laughs> but um, if you're not, I'll tell you. <laughs> so uh, we, we had a, a really disappointing event about a year ago where our drill stopped working. Uh, and, you know, um, yeah, it, pretty devastating when, when you're so emotionally connected to the mission like a lot of us are. Because as, as you've come to learn, the mission is really built around the ability to drill and, and analyze this drilled samples in those laboratories. So the drill stopped working about a year ago. It just kind of became unreliable. It didn't actually stop working. Uh, and so we spent about six months trying to resuscitate it, trying to figure out if we could write different software for it, um, you know, do anything we could, do it this way, do it that way, whatever it would like. Uh, we tried it, uh, and, uh, and we couldn't really get anywhere. And so then we spent uh, now about eight months after that initial six months trying to figure out, and when I say we, I mean the engineers. Again, I, I have nothing to do with this. Uh, <laughs> I'm just the end user. Um, the engineers at JPL spent about eight months figuring out if they could redesign the entire way we drill to avoid the use of that broken part, which is really remarkable. So the, uh, you know, I'll show a little video, a three-minute video that, that summarizes this, but um, the, the main motor that moves the drill up and down stopped working. Uh, and, and, and yet, the engineers were able to find a way to, uh, 100 million miles away, <laughs> uh, test on Earth, using our backup test rover on Earth that we have at JPL, invent a whole new way of drilling that was safe and reliable to use on Mars, and then, then actually command it to try this first drill hole. We, we haven't hit the home run yet in the sense that we've drilled this small hole, and we still need to drill a deeper hole to be able to get enough material to deliver to the instruments, and this one didn't quite do that. But still, until yesterday, we had been a whole year without drilling on Mars, and, and so, Quite happy. 
Um, and uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Here's that story. Since Curiosity landed on Mars in 2012, it's used its drill to acquire samples from Martian rocks 15 times. But a little over a year ago, in December of 2016, Curiosity's drill started giving it problems. The drill's feed mechanism, which is responsible for moving Curiosity's drill bit into and out of rocks, didn't move when commanded. When Curiosity drills into a rock the way it was designed to, the drill's two stabilizer posts touch the rock first to steady the arm while the drill's feed mechanism moves the bit forward into the rock. Without the feed mechanism working, we can't drill that way. To solve this problem, we do what we always do. We worked it out in the test bed using Curiosity's twin on Earth. Our team of engineers and scientists have been working for months to figure out a way to collect and deliver rock samples without using the feed mechanism. Here's what we came up with. Using our new technique, called feed-extended drilling, the stabilizers are not used. The bit is now in a forward position extended past the stabilizers. Moving the drill straight into a rock and retracting safely without the stabilizers is challenging. We move the arm instead of the feed mechanism to place the bit onto the rock and press it forward as it drills. After making contact, we apply a light preload and drill a shallow pilot hole. We use a force sensor in the robotic arm to give Curiosity a sense of touch. This lets Curiosity adjust its arm motion and avoid getting stuck while drilling, kind of like you might adjust your arm while drilling into a wall at home. After drilling, we use a similar technique to retract from the hole without getting stuck. We recently tried this method using Curiosity on Mars, and here's how it turned out. This picture shows the first hole drilled on Mars ever with this new drilling technique. Even though we can't see the hole in this image, we know we drilled about one centimeter deep. The hole itself is buried under the powder generated during drilling. This is a good sign for the new drilling method. Next, we have to drill a deeper hole to collect sample and demonstrate our new techniques for delivering the sample to Curiosity's two onboard labs. That will come in the days ahead. Yeah, that picture and that video literally is on the website about three hours ago. So, <laughs> um, glad I was in time for this lecture. Uh, so, I think the last two pictures here before we end. Um, this is one we took from our position now, a thousand feet high on the mountain, and we could, for the first time, we able we sort of turned a corner, got behind, we got above a little blockage, and we're able to see all the way back to the landing site for the first time. So we landed here. Uh, and then we drove over here, made those discoveries at Yellowknife Bay, and then continued on. And the, this, this mountain range here is the far side of the crater. Uh, that's like 30 miles away from where we are on the central mountain. So we're looking across this 30-mile crater floor, uh, and here's the mountain that we're on. Um, so my final uh, thing here is just to uh, give you one slide of, of what's coming. Um, Curiosity played an important role in the Mars program by um, understanding the habitability of Mars, and um, you know it, it was a habitable planet. There, this, you know, the evidence now is is really strong that we've determined that three to four billion years ago, Mars could have supported life. The question is, did life ever arise? Uh, and and that's exciting that we can ask that now because Curiosity could have had a very different answer. Uh, so now it's up to future missions to go look for ev actual evidence that life was able to use that habitable environment. 
And so the 2020 rover mission, which launches in 2020, uh, is built on the same platform as Curiosity, but carries a payload that is designed to detect ancient signs of life. As we talked about, it's very challenging. So the, machine, the, the, the instruments that we're bringing with the rover may or may not succeed in that. Uh, but what this rover also does is collect the samples that it drills, puts them in little vials that are sealed on Mars, uh, and puts them in a canister so that one day a future mission can bring that canister of samples back to Earth, and we can use all the very best laboratories on Earth to understand if any of those rock samples contain evidence of life. Uh, so this is not only a, a really neat mission that's the next step in understanding life on Mars, it's the first step in returning samples uh, from Mars to Earth. And with that, thank you very much. Um, okay, so the first question do we find about the ancient atmosphere? Yes, uh, I could talk for like five hours about everything we've found, which is very frustrating because I want to tell you everything. Um, but we had this whole other experiment we could do with one of our laboratories to suck in Mars air and understand what it's made out of. And one of the things you can do is look at the um, composition of the air today, uh, specifically uh, what's called the isotopic composition of the air. Um, molecules have light versions and heavy versions, uh, and you can measure how many light versions and heavy versions there are. And uh, what that tells you is that when, um, if Mars' atmosphere was lost over time, like we think it has been, uh, you, end, you end up retaining a lot of the heavy ones because the light ones escape. So Mars' atmosphere has a lot of the heavy versions of different molecules, whether it's carbon dioxide, water, uh, and that fits with this long-standing theory that the reason Mars went from wet to dry is because a great, uh, big percentage of the atmosphere has been lost to space. Uh, so that's one of the things we were able to find out from the atmosphere. And uh, will 2020 have labs like Viking? Not quite the same ones. Um, one of the things that Viking did in 1976-77 uh, was to um, attempt to feed microbes in the soil and see if me metabolic products came off, act, like sort of actively look for life living. Uh, that's not the kind of thing that 2020 does. It's more looking for what's called biosignatures, um, patterns of chemicals, isotopes, minerals that don't form naturally but more commonly form because of life. So it's looking for biosignatures, but not actively looking for living life. Okay. Yeah, a couple quick questions. Uh, first, thanks for the great presentation. Um, I'm planning on visiting JPL in the next couple months, and I'm wondering, is it possible to see the twin uh, curiosity when, when I go down? Um, you can, uh, there's, we have two, models of curiosity, uh, the real one and the fake one, kind of. Okay. So anybody can see a full-size wood and plastic model of curiosity. That's one of the things that all the tour groups go see. So okay. you can, that, it's neat in itself because you can appreciate the size of it and look up close. It's pretty well made. The actual one that you saw in the video and the one that's here, actually, uh, this is in a place called the Mars Yard at JPL, uh, which is a, a, like a football field size area that's made to be like Mars, it's the rover proving grounds. Uh, we have the test rovers climb hills and learn how to navigate. Uh, and um, that's where this model lives, which is the one that's very similar to the one actually on Mars. 
because it's very precious, it spends most of its time in a shed uh, and kind of not open to the public. But yeah. if you happen to be lucky, uh, and maybe this is like half the time, it'll be out in the ground and you can see it. Okay. Also, I'm, I was wondering, do you have an awareness like right now um, on the day-night cycle in Mars? Like, is Curiosity in daylight right now or, or nighttime? Do you know? It would be um, probably in daylight now. Uh -huh. um, Mars has a 24 and a half hour day, uh, believe it or not. Um, it's coincidence. There's nothing magical about 24 hours. It just happens to have a, a 40 minute or so longer day than Earth, uh, which means that um, we, we stay in sync with Mars for about three weeks, and then we are out of sync for about three weeks, and that, that's, that's sort of the cycle. Um, I'm going to digress because you asked a fun question. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we do when we land on Mars, uh, the most efficient way to operate these missions, uh, especially when you're worried about it dying and you have this precious thing that actually is on Mars, you want to stay in sync with it. So you get every minute out of it. So we actually live on Mars time for about 90 days, uh, where we, we adjust our bodies to 24 and a half hours, or we try to anyway. Uh, you, you tape out your windows at home, you talk your family into it. Uh, <laughs> and, and for about 90 days, you come to work 40 minutes later every day. Uh, and the reason it's 90 days is because everybody goes crazy after that. But at least for 90 days, you get to operate it maximally. And now we operate it every day for three weeks. And then when we're out of sync, we operate it every other day. Uh, and it turns out, this long answer to your question, we're out of sync when, um, uh, when Mars and Earth are daylight at the same time. Because what we like to do is it's daylight on Mars, the rover's doing its thing while we're all sleeping. Then we wake up the next morning and we spend eight hours planning and we send the commands up just as the sun's rising on Mars. We can only do that for about three weeks. Right now we're in one of the cycles where we're in sync, meaning that as now it's getting dark here, it's getting light on Mars. Thank you. Yes. My question is about one of your other research interests, the weather on Jupiter. Uh, quoting from a Frank Sinatra song, let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. So I'm wondering what you can tell us about spring on Jupiter. <laughs> uh, I won't spend too much time, uh, but um, uh, before this mission, I was involved in a mission called Galileo, uh, which was the first orbiter in, uh, sent to, to Jupiter. All the missions prior to that were ones that just kind of flew by, Voyager, Pioneer. But we, um, we spent a few years around Jupiter in orbit. And one thing um, about these planets that are far from the sun is that uh, they only go around the sun in time scales of like 10, 20, 30 years. So uh, sort of a short, glib answer to your question is that spring is very long on Jupiter. <laughs> yes. Well, first of all, thank you for a fascinating lecture. <clears throat> so I have a question about whether or not uh, there seems to be some evidence that there's water underneath the sand and there's still liquid water there. And if so, what do you think is the possible probability that there might be microbes that survived from when Mars was habitable and still just sitting there and giving off methane, possibly? And I know they detected methane and they're up, seem not say, oh, it had to be life, and oh, no, we've got another explanation. So uh, where do you fall on that? Yeah. So one of the other fascinating discoveries that I had no time to talk about until now uh, is um, we uh, 
equip the rover to follow up on an Earth-based discovery of methane on Mars. And not just methane, but variable methane. And that's the important part, because uh, when chemists study methane on Mars, they, they conclude that it, should, that it should not vary any faster than about 300 years. Uh, it's pretty, that's sort of its life in the atmosphere. But the Earth-based observations, we're seeing variations on this, you know, much faster than that, meaning something is actively producing it and or something is actively destroying it. Uh, and when you talk about something that produces methane, you get pretty excited because on Earth, a lot of that is life. Uh, and so um, we equipped Curiosity sort of at the last minute to follow up on this and have determined also that methane varies pretty regularly annually, so much faster than 300 years. But also, we found a tenfold spike that happened in just in a few days. Uh, and so we are um, hesitant, as any good scientist should be, to jump to the conclusion of life. So we're now going through the process of trying to come up with any non-biological explanation and either come to believe that that's more likely or rule it out. Uh, and so we, you know, we have an explanation now for the background that seems to make sense, where constantly new material is being deposited on Mars from meteors and dust that contains organics. And those organics are released because they break down when they get to Mars because of all the radiation. So that can, that can provide this annual cycle. But we have no explanation yet for those spikes. So it's still an ongoing question. And, and to, overall, I think there could be life on Mars today, much less likely than life in the past. But if it were on Mars today, it would have to be underground, protected from the harsh surface environment. Thank you. Thank you so much for your talk. How do you deal with sample contamination, either from rubber, the rover parts themselves or cleansing the uh, test chamber so that you're assured that your next sample is, is pure? Yeah. Um, the main way we control contamination is when we actually are building the rover, uh, because the, the probably the the biggest source of contamination we worry about is, is bringing stuff from Earth. Um, the people who made it uh, just contaminates from the clean room it was built in. Um, so most of the cleaning and contamination control was done during the actual building of it. Um, once we're on Mars, uh, we can not do too much to uh, clean from one sample to the other. Uh, but what we can do is all the, all the places where sample travels through the drill and through all the um, equipment that delivers it to the instruments. They're made out of very smooth surfaces and we have a lot of machinery on the rover that, that shakes things and whacks things. Uh, so very much the way um, you, know, you, you might do it if, if you were um, trying to clean something on Earth without water. Uh, very fine powder sticks to everything and so you just give it a good whack and you get as much out. The other thing we found works pretty well is sand. So we can scoop up some sand, and that really cleans out uh, and repolishes all the, all the surfaces. So uh, we know we're getting some contamination from one sample to the next, but we do our best to uh, clean everything as well as we can without water. OK. Other planets in the solar system have moved around in the course of the solar system. I think there's a popular theory that Uranus and Neptune have swapped places, and uh, Saturn and Jupiter were once on a two-to-one resonance, and that's not true now. So I wondered if there was a period in time for at least a few million years where 
Mars was significantly closer to the sun than it is now. And could uh, that be the explanation for the warmer climate? Yeah, I mean, that, that would help explain things quite a bit. There's no evidence or modeling so far that, that supports that. Although I think people look for those sorts of things in the inner solar system too. Most of the changes in orbit have been in sort of the outer solar system. Just to expand on the, the problem that you're describing, um, the reason, there's, there's actually a pretty big paradox for um, some of the results that I've shown in the sense that not only, well, there's two problems. I'll try to summarize these quickly. When people put a thick atmosphere on Mars uh, and even fill it with carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas, even then, at the orbit distance that Mars is, it's not warm enough to make that nice, wet weather system that I was describing that was needed. And that's even made worse by the fact that the sun, our sun, got warmer over time. Uh, and three, four billion years ago, it was only about 75% as, as warm as it is now. So it makes it even harder for early Mars to be wet. So we haven't answered how it could be that wet yet. Yeah, I guess I have sort of a, a related question. Uh, I believe in your, your, in your slides you were showing that uh, the uh, period of uh, a wet Mars with lakes and running water and things existed over a couple hundred million years in that range, which seems like a fairly stable situation. So what all of a sudden changed to cause the climate to change as radically as it has? Yeah, um, the, the primary idea is that the atmosphere was lost to space, mo much of the atmosphere. Okay, but gravity didn't change. The size of it stayed the same. So it's just a very gradually slow process of losing the lighter molecules? Right. Um, so what happens is um, two things. Mars isn't doesn't have as strong gravity as Earth does. So some molecules literally do just escape over time. They do on Earth too, just less. But another major difference is that Mars, that Earth has a magnetic field that serves to kind of shield our atmosphere from the sun, the radiation and, and uh, solar wind from the sun that strips away the atmosphere of Mars, which is not protected by a magnetic field. And one idea is that early in Mars history, it did have a magnetic field, but because Mars cooled faster than the Earth, being a smaller planet, it lost its magnetic field at some point, became vulnerable to the solar wind stripping away the atmosphere, and that's what led it to its present state. Okay, thanks. Hi, uh, thank you for your presentation. Uh, so it seemed like uh, 15 samples wasn't a huge sample size for the, uh, <laughs> the uh, mission. Uh, so why is it that uh, it was only 15 rather than like 1,000 samples? What was some of the main limiting factors? Yeah, no, it's, we'd love 1,000 samples. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, it really is just a practical limitation. It, it takes a few weeks to go through an entire sampling campaign from choosing a site, making sure the site's safe, having the drill do its thing, analyzing the samples. Uh, so um, we, you know, we, we sample and we drive and we sample and we drive and we sort of strategically do that so that over the end of the mission we, we make the distance we want to make and get as many samples along the way as we can. Uh, so we were on a good roll. We were, we were doing like six, seven a year, 
uh, at the point where the drill stopped working. Um, so we probably would have had 25 or so by now, which isn't 1,000, but, <laughs> um, but that's the real answer. It's, it's, um, it's just a, a trade-off between all the other stuff we do and then taking the two weeks to sit in one place while we're sampling. Thank you. Last couple over here. Go ahead. Uh, in all your example images, as far as I could tell, it looked like they were all sedimentary rock formations. Yes. I was wondering if there are any outcroppings that you've been able to find of uh, igneous or metamorphic rock formations that uh, would be in a position that you could drill and sample? Yeah, so um, with Curiosity, we've found only sedimentary rock, uh, which for our purposes is great because sedimentary rock means rock that formed from sediment being brought in by wind or water. In this case, a lot of water. Um, igneous rocks, um, ones that formed like under a volcano or from a volcano, that sort of thing. We found just cobbles, uh, which is also neat because it means water eroded parts of the crater rim that are igneous and then brought the little cobbles down to where we could see them. So they're rare, uh, but we have found uh, cobbles that are sort of like the size of my fist that have big crystals in them that tell us they were actually formed in a magma chamber. We, not, not big enough to drill, unfortunately, but we have studied them chemically with our other sensors. And do you have the ability to get into any um, uh, meteor collision craters that might expose uh, older rock? No, we, you know, we probably can only, um, uh, so we're in a 100 mile crater, and over the mission we're gonna drive 20, 30 miles max. So we, you know, our home is Gale Crater, and our and our life will be spent on the mountain inside Gale Crater. Okay, sure. Um, next over here. Thank you for this talk and raising public awareness about the rover. I've heard about it in the news, but you kind of helped make it exciting. So, uh, my question is: um, Are there other missions planned to other um, planets or other moons? Um, a few years ago, I saw this movie called Europa Report, which some astronauts go to one of the moons of Jupiter to look for life and, and uh, it's very dramatized, but yeah, can you, can you speak to any other potential rovers, um, Europa or other, sure. other places, or maybe Mars again? So. Yeah, so I obviously love Mars, uh, and uh, I'm not gonna be shy about that. Although I do have, unlike a lot of my colleagues, I have this history with Jupiter that makes me a little suspect to them sometimes. Um, but, there's a, a kind of an informal you know, competition between Mars, which has dominated so much of NASA's attention and funding, and everything else. And the everything else crowd is starting to really get their day in the sun. Um, of course, we've had Cassini, and we've had Galileo. We have these great orbiters, but they wanna, you know, we want to land somewhere. Uh, and so what's changed the equation a little bit, um, the reason Mars has gotten so much attention is because it, it's one of the only places that had clear evidence of all this liquid water. But now, with Galileo, is the first to find this actually, the moons of Jupiter, and now Saturn we know too, have shells of ice that have entire liquid oceans underneath them today. So, dang it, unlike us, they have liquid water now. <laughs> and so, um, there are missions being planned as we speak to go land on Europa, a moon of Jupiter, uh, and look for um, any water that may be coming out through the ice shell for example, there's a moon called Enceladus, which has cracks in the ice where the water is geysering out today. Uh, there's Titan, which um, has rain today that's made out of hydrocarbons, the raw material of, you know, that life would need. Uh, so there's a lot of cool places to go. A problem is that they're very far away compared to Mars. Uh, 
and, uh, and, and require a lot of technology that, that doesn't exist yet. So we're, we're getting there. Uh, but there, um, I think the era of Mars, as much as I hate to say this, may be winding down, and the era of Europa and others may be ramping up. Thank you. The last question. We already have quite a few Martian rocks here on this planet. They flew here by themselves, landed as meteorites. I'm wondering, have any of them proven to be interesting? Uh, do they look somewhat similar to how the rocks that your lander's been studying on, on the planet itself? Yeah. Um, so um, two quick answers about that. I mean, the, those samples, of course, are extremely valuable. They've been studied more than most rocks on Earth. Uh, and what happens is you can go to places like Antarctica, um, where uh, there's white ice, and the white ice is sort of churning up and keeping stuff that falls on it at the surface. And so it's a good place to go hunt for meteorites, because you can find them against the white snow and ice, and you can go collect them. And it turns out when you go to Antarctica and collect meteorites, a, a decent fraction are from Mars, uh, and some are from the moon, and, you know, and some are from the ones that actually just you know, came from somewhere else, asteroid belt or somewhere. And so we have something like 20 or 30 Martian meteorites now. Um, and uh, they tend to be from um, the, the um, volcanic sort of places on Mars. A place, something like this, like a mudstone from a lake, wouldn't survive the journey to Earth. So we don't, we, unfortunately, it's a, there's a bias to what you get from Mars. You get the very hard volcanic rocks. Um, so you wouldn't be able to learn this stuff. But I'll just end with one story that you know, I just think is really cool, is that you, you can look at these meteorites from Mars, and you can draw out the gas from little bubbles that are trapped inside the meteorite, and you can sample the Martian atmosphere from a meteorite that land on Earth, and you can measure its composition, and you can measure its isotopes. And now that we've landed on Mars, uh, especially with Curiosity and the, and the accuracy that Curiosity's instruments have, you can actually um, see the exact same gases and the exact same ratios, exact same amounts, and uh, you can look at it like, you know, Curiosity is the final proof that these meteorites are actually from Mars, uh, even though we sort of believe that uh, a lot so far. Thank you.